0: Well, I believe he also said that he flew on the back of a giant butterfly with a beautiful woman with long blonde hair and blue eyes. What is interesting to me is, first of all, nobody likes the killjoy. Nobody likes the argument that there is no afterlife and that it's all a kind of illusion. It's not a very uplifting, life-affirming message to take this sort of existential perspective on our mortality.
1: Friends, welcome to the second load of BS podcast of 2022 with me, Daniel Ross. For those of you overwhelmed by the load of BS consuming British politics at the moment, turn the news off, crack open some supermarket rosé, unpeel the sausage rolls and get stuck in and enjoy this half hour event. Please stay to the end and I make no apology for that invitation. By the way, if you want to put questions forward to any of my guests, you are very, very welcome. Email me at danielsjross at gmail.com or send me a tweet at danielsjross. Upcoming guests are advertising legend Dave Trott, football writer Guillaume Balaguer, mindfulness writer Ruby Wax, and head of BS and former comedian at JP Morgan, Jeff Chrysler. Wait a minute, or should I say former comedian and current head of BS at J.P. Morgan, Jeff Kreisler. Maybe that's the right way round. Now, last week, you may remember we addressed conspiracy theories with David Aronovich. Today's subject is no less spicy and polarising. We are talking the afterlife with Dr. Jesse Bering, experimental psychologist and a leading scholar in the cognitive science of religion. Jesse is also an essayist and science writer specialising in evolution and human behaviour to which end he's become an expert in evolutionary taboos, and that's the subject of our conversations, of which today is part one of two. Jesse is a prolific writer. His first book, The Belief Instinct, was included in the American Library Association's top 25 books of the year and voted one of the 11 best psychology books of 2011 by The Atlantic. This was followed by a collection of his Webby Award-nominated essays, Why Is the Penis Shaped Like That?, and Perv, a taboo-breaking work that received widespread critical acclaim and was named as a New York Times editor's choice. His most recent book was a very human ending, all about suicide, and his current work in progress is Dead Minds, about the science of the afterlife, which is the subject of today's conversation. As I hope is the case with many of my BS shinwags, this one is personal, poignant and dazzlingly mind-opening. If that's the right turn of phrase, I ask you all afterlife aficionados out there. Enjoy, learn, and, well, what else could you possibly do? Leave me a five-star review on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Share this with a friend, share it on Twitter. All these things apparently guarantee reincarnation, according to Mark Zuckerberg. Let's get on with it. Jesse, welcome to A Load of BS. It's great to have you along today.
0: Hey, Daniel. Thanks for having me.
1: Pleasure. So this episode definitively sets the record for time difference between interlocutors. I'm in London. You're in New Zealand. I'm not sure if a 13-hour gap places us on a different equilibrium, since you're probably in pumping coffee mode at half past nine in the morning on the fourth day of the week. I'm sliding into a possible fatigue at 8.30 p.m. with kids' bedtime behind me on Wednesday. But more yeah, important, in- <laughs> That puts the onus on me. <laughs> right, ex- indeed it does. But more importantly, I hope you're feeling energized and ready to talk about the afterlife, suicide, and some other BS taboos. Um some white um, yeah. Exactly. But this is actually what's so exciting, for me at least, about behavioral science. It takes one in so many creative directions. In the recent past on this podcast, you know, we've addressed biases and curiosities in advertising, financial markets, sport, politics, even wine consumption. But today is all about your specialist areas of research. In writing, Jesse, in well, human behaviour,
0: a little, I and a little bit about wine consumption, but but not oh well, by,
1: by all means, by all means, if you want to slip a few thoughts on wine consumption and favourite tipples, then that will be very welcome. But what I understand, at least, is your specialist area of research in writing is around human behaviour and evolution, particularly around evolutionary taboos and associated quirks and foibles. Now, taboos, by definition, can be awkward to talk about. Now, I'm very excited about that awkwardness. Actually, I totally welcome it, and any thrill, trepidation, or Drama that comes from it today is very welcome. So, we're going to focus today on the subject of your next book. Dead Minds, that's not yet published, but it's about the science of the afterlife. And with time permitting, we'll turn to some other taboos you've written and spoken about extensively, including suicide and perversion. But before we turn to the heart of the matter, I want to ask a couple of introductory questions to set the scene. So addressing taboos is often uncomfortable, and the titles you give some of your books are often provocative, indeed a little clickbaity. For example, why is the penis shaped like that? Then there's perv, the sexual deviant in all of us. I want to stress first up that your books are, you know, based on hard science, but your style is irreverent and cheeky. You share a lot of your own life in your explanations, juicy gossip and all. And so is this a deliberate strategy to welcome readers into these new worlds to make the distant more accessible? Or is it just your natural style?
0: I would say a little bit of both. I think that it does reflect my just genuine curiosity and interest in provocative topics, the things that have been relatively unspoken or, uncomfortably discussed in terms of my own personal experiences growing up and, you know, just noticing the reticence that people have in terms of having frank, open-minded conversations about what are fundamentally important elements of human existence. And becoming a psychologist, especially somebody who has taken a sort of evolutionary approach to human behavior, has given me, I guess, a sort of intellectual license to pursue these controversial or provocative topics in a way that people can approach more readily, I suppose. And you've got to attract them to the topic before they can begin to think about it very deeply. The clickbaity part is just kind of getting people to pay attention. And then once they pay attention, they realize it's actually a little bit more complicated and complex and deeper than might appear at first glance.
1: And and tell us a little, how, how did you develop these particular research interests? Did you always seek the controversial, the somewhat unusual?
0: Not deliberately. I mean, I think I'm interested in what I'm interested in. And each of my sort of general areas of research in terms of the books that I've written, at least, have sort of captured big questions that I've had as a private person and somebody that has interrogated these issues on my own and then looked at the science to try to get a better handle on them. So I don't think that I, you know, some people might see me as a sensationalist. And I think there's, you know, there are elements of that in my writing style, at least, but that really is my voice. And that is my personality. I don't do it to be outrageous or deliberately controversial. It's just simply the way that I communicate.
1: Understood. Let's turn now then to the topic which is at the centre of your forthcoming book, Dead Minds, and that's the afterlife. Can we start with the basics? How do you define an afterlife?
0: Well, as a cognitive psychologist, I think that I would try to find an operational definition, and this would be something along the lines of envisioning personal consciousness as surviving biological death. And that covers a lot of different theological belief systems. You know, you get a lot of anthropological plumage, I think, in terms of diversity of afterlife beliefs. But central to them is this belief in the continuity of the essence of the individual. And I think when we say essence of the individual, we really mean, personal consciousness in some way, surviving bodily death. So whether it's the classical sort of Judeo-Christian immortalist that believes that you go to some other realm of existence in terms of heaven, or whether you're a reincarnationist and some part of your personality gets recycled into another life form, there's an element of your personal consciousness that persists even after your brain dies.
1: So you could call it, it's a consciousness without a body.
0: Yeah. I mean, reincarnationism, I think it's kind of throws a a wrench into that a little bit but there is even within reincarnationism there's this sort of interval where you've got a sort of transit to another corporeal form
1: and what's the evolutionary argument supporting the afterlife how do those things connect
0: Well, there is no evolutionary argument supporting the existence of the afterlife in terms from an ontological perspective. Maybe you planned on asking this in terms of what I personally believe, but I don't believe that there is anything along the lines of mental states or psychological existence after biological death. But what intrigues me about this topic and this question is the fact that it is so seductive and so psychologically intuitive to the vast majority of the human species. And from an evolutionary perspective, that's intriguing to me because it suggests in collaboration with lots of empirical data, at least, that there is potentially an adaptive function to reasoning that the mind survives death. And the most convincing case, as far as I'm concerned, is, I guess, broadly speaking, what you would call the supernatural punishment hypothesis. This is a theoretical framework that I developed with Dominic Johnson, who's currently at Oxford University. And the thesis is that we behave morally in this life because we think we will be punished potentially either in the afterlife or by supernatural agents including deceased ancestors or ghosts or spirits god eventually for our social transgressions in this life and that basically keeps us socio-morally neutered i guess in terms of our decision making in this world and ultimately that translates to inclusive fitness or adaptive benefits in terms of our decisions in the here and now so irrespective of whether there is an afterlife the illusion that there's an afterlife is hugely influential to our behavioral decision making and our adaptive behaviors in our biological corporeal forms in terms of evolutionary success.
1: It seems to me even from the few things that you've said so far that there are different narratives, there are different interpretations around the afterlife. I wonder whether it's possible to connect the dots a little and just give us some kind of plotted history of afterlife beliefs by which I mean, A, I think it seems to me that they're as prevalent as ever now, but can you describe how they've changed over time?
0: Well, you'd be hard pressed to find anthropologically any society that doesn't have some iteration or some version of an afterlife belief system. And oftentimes that's quite basic in the form of our deceased ancestors surviving and influencing events in our contemporary lives. And there's no high level or high gods as they would be known in the cognitive science literature. But it's just simply the assumption that when you die, you continue psychologically in some form. And it's difficult to trace that archaeologically, of course, because if you look at non-literate societies, you're not going to find a lot of concrete material evidence of afterlife beliefs that that are captured in the archaeological record. I'm actually working on a grant project right now that's meant to track depictions of the afterlife in art across cultures and across time. So looking at how mind-body dualism, for instance, was characterized in artistic forms and tracking that with the sort of socio-ecological trends that were emergent sort of in that area at that time because I do think that the the particular afterlife belief system that you have in any given society is probably going to map onto the social regulatory mechanisms that you have operating in that place and time and it should be basically sort of mirroring that but the basic sort of cognitive angle here is that it is natural to believe in psychological continuity after death and unnatural to deny it or to reject that thesis and by saying unnatural that's not to say that it's wrong or bad or anything like that. It's just simply saying that it's cognitively effortful to override the intuition that mind survived death.
1: So let me try and build on that a little, and by all means, bring in your own experiences here. Because when people talk about glimpses of the afterlife, it often comes, say, via an apparition. It could be a near-death experience. Maybe it's a memory. Are these actually just tricks of the mind? They're post-rationalizations, or is there more to it than that?
0: Well... They are certainly theoretical frameworks that are meant to explain these attributions, I suppose, in terms of people's interpretations of this reflecting an ontological reality. So some of the more interesting work, I think, in this area has come out of Claire White and Dan Fessler's work from an evolutionary perspective, looking at the experience of apparitions. And what they've found is that a very high percentage of people who have recently lost loved ones have some sort of sensory encounter in the environment that triggers the attribution of the event to this particular deceased person. But the interesting thing is that you're much more likely to make these what they call false attributions, I believe, assuming that they're not grounded in reality. If the decedent has died and you have not seen the physical body of the person, they've died, but you haven't had perceptual or visual confirmation of the death of the individual. So if somebody dies in a car accident and you go to... To the funeral and there's a closed casket, you're much more likely, according to this model at least, to have a apparitional experience in terms of like, you know, thinking that you hear the person walking down the hallway or you hear them humming or something like that in a faraway bedroom than if you saw with an open casket funeral. You actually had visual confirmation of the violation of the bodily antelope. And the evolutionary part of this comes into the fact that ancestrally there would have been a lot of occasions where people in our relatively small in-group would have ventured away for hunting expeditions or maybe to other parties for mating purposes or whatever, and they just never returned. And it's uncertain whether they've died or they might one day come back. And the brain is then then sort of primed to be especially receptive to the possibility or to be hypervigilant, basically, to signs of their reunification with you as a sort of central person in your life.
1: And on the subjects of the recently deceased, if I'm not mistaken, you wrote very personally about that, your own experience with your mother.
0: Yeah, so I think you know a lot of my interests, both academically and in terms of my popular science writing, have come from my own personal experiences. And when I was doing my PhD, which was on the subject of what children think about life after death, specifically how children reason about the continuity of mental states after death, my mother simultaneously was dying of cancer. And it was a horrible, difficult time for me because I was taking care of her and she had cancer since I was 13. You know, she died when I was 24. So it was just years and years of chemotherapy, breast cancer, ovarian cancer. And it just always felt like death was kind of constantly nipping at our heels as a family. And we were always worried about her. And she eventually succumbed to ovarian cancer. She had the BRCA genetic mutation. But as she was dying and I was working on my PhD, we were having conversations about what she thought happens after you die, where she she was going to go, if there was anything after death. And we just had some really interesting, frank, open, exploratory conversations, I guess, about what would happen when she died. And, you know, this was 20 years ago, over 20 years ago now, but I do remember having some really meaningful discussions with her. And she was Jewish, so she didn't have a clear, I guess, theological script in terms of what she was expected to think would happen to her after she died. And I guess I would consider her to be an agnostic. She certainly wasn't the hard-headed rationalist that I am, or was, even at that time. But anyway, there were a couple things with her passing that really resonated with me. One was that in the very final days, she kind of lapsed into a coma and this was medically induced mainly. And we just kind of all assumed that that was the end of it, that, you know, we would never have any further interactions with her. And that to me was even harder than, you know, when she physically died because we just thought we'd lost any opportunity to have any final conversation with her, tell her how much we loved her and so on. But the night before she died, there was a very strange episode for me personally where, you know, she was being treated by hospice. She was at home dying basically in a hospital bed in her bedroom at home. And it was just the two of us. I was in her bedroom. She was in this hospital bed next to me two o'clock in the morning and just opened her eyes and looked at me she was incredibly weak but there was a lucidity in her eyes and she reached out to me and I, I just i felt like i got that closure from her and told her how much i loved her and it was very meaningful to me and you know she went back to sleep and then she basically died the next morning and emotionally that's still quite overwhelming to me that i had that last opportunity to kind of just feel like i could tell her how much she meant to me and later i learned there, there's an actual paranormal term for this in, in these circles called terminal lucidity where people who are very close to death or people who have had Alzheimer's or dementia, they've got this moment of clarity, essentially, before their biological demise, where they kind of wake up and they say goodbye to the people that they love or people that they love can communicate with them in that way. And it's not uncommon. And that has still, even to this day, left me with some questions, I guess, about exactly what was happening at that sort of neuro architectural level in terms of her brain functioning. So there was that, you know, I don't necessarily think ascribe a paranormal interpretation to that experience, but it was very meaningful to me. And can see how people would easily interpret it in that way, and then it was also after she died the next morning. I found myself with my brother and sister, just we were all terribly distraught, sleeping in the living room downstairs and the wind chimes outside of her bedroom window chime. We all kind of looked at each other because it it seemed strange because there wasn't a lot of wind at that time. And I think we all kind of had this mutual interpretation that that was mom telling us that she was okay, she's made it to the other side or whatever. And even though I overrode that in terms of my own materialist, rationalist, skeptical explanation of that it, I felt it, you know. it's still that's where my mind went. So it's these types of questions I guess in terms of what the human mind does in the wake of loss and the continuity of the personalities that were so central to us that have always intrigued me.
1: I can imagine that closure was extremely meaningful and and moving. I mean it's it's a very poignant story. You are listening to a load of BS with me Daniel Ross and my guest the amazing Dr. Jesse Bering. Life after death, there's so much to look forward to. In this second half, we talk about the brain and consciousness and best-selling accounts of the afterlife. But before we continue, I must of course mention my sponsor of a load of BS, and that's Crankwheel. From Iceland originally, these guys are as cool as ice and are sweeping up new clients like crazy as more of us get Zoom fatigue and want simpler ways to engage virtually with colleagues. Some people have the ability to paint a picture in a few words. Crankwheel is for the rest of us. Crankwheel gives you zero friction screen sharing during voice calls. You send a link to the person on the other end of the line and they enter that seamlessly on any browser, any device. No logins, no registering, no what's my bloody password. Crankwheel is particularly great for those first sales calls or for onboarding new customers. It's, it's really for any business looking to engage with customers more efficiently. I'm personally delighted to be supporting the guys. And by the way, a load of BS subscribers can use Crankwheel Unlimited for two months by signing up at get.crankwheel.com forward slash load of BS. Now there's a deal for you if I hadn't seen one before. Now, on with the show. I mean, going back just to the touch on sort of the, the near-death experience, that seems quite central to the afterlife conversation. And the problem it seems to me from, from a scientific point of view with near-death experiences is, is that people who have them typically have some predisposition. It might be a religious belief or there might have been some trauma involved. And so, of course, one can't have any control group from a scientific point of view because most people on the brink of dying do in fact die. So can't describe what the process is like. And those who come back from the brink, seems to have vastly different experiences. They could have been involved in a car accident. They could have had a heart attack. So is it possible to compare experiences where you have such variability?
0: Well, I think that that's what a lot of paranormal investigators have attempted to do. They try to find commonalities in near-death experience reports. And for some, that's much more convincing than others, I suppose. But I guess irrespective of your personal belief system, there do seem to be recurring trends in terms of a life review, for instance, or this feeling of the episode or the experience being realer than real, that it's incredibly vivid and you have absolutely no question that this was a genuine phenomenon that you experienced while you were dead. Even people that are ostensibly atheists or skeptics that have come back ostensibly and said that they've had these experiences report these types of phenomenological events. So there are recurring trends, I guess, if you take at face value the paranormal psychological investigations. But it is a very tricky question scientifically, obviously, to answer because you can't really do controlled experimental studies. And a few approaches that have attempted this where you've got, for instance, in cardiac arrest units in emergency rooms where you've got some really obscure visual image or pattern of symbols the ceiling that you can only sort of visually access if you were to leave your body and float above your body and look down. And then all of those have basically failed miserably, those controlled studies. So we're really left with people's testimonials in terms of the veracity of these accounts. And they are emotionally seductive and powerful and meaningful. And I have absolutely no doubt that they are transformative in terms of the people that have encountered them. But I don't know how much stock I would put into them in terms of them reflecting reflecting the reality of consciousness surviving death. Because in the absence of your physical brain working, we have to have some mechanism by which consciousness occurs. And there are some people, of course, that think that the brain is some sort of transducer or a receiver of consciousness. They like to make analogies like even if there's a broken radio and the, the radio signal still exists out there, it doesn't mean that consciousness disappears. And people make that analogy with human consciousness as well. But to me, that just raises more questions than answers in terms of the individuality of human consciousness. So I think that you know the entire field of cognitive neuroscience would basically fall flat on its face if we were to assume that the brain is not necessarily... Necessary for
1: consciousness. I want to come back maybe shortly to some of the more controversial areas of research on the subject. But I presume as part of the book, you've talked to people about having these death-like sort of out-of-body experiences where there's this sort of perceptions of seeing their body outside of themselves. Has that been an important part of your preparation and, and writing process?
0: No, actually, not really, because I think that those self reports, like I said, are largely testimonial in nature, and I don't put a lot of stock in them from a scientific perspective. What I find more interesting are these forensic investigative accounts of afterlife experiences that can be documented by third parties, for instance, or you've got some sort of deathbed visitation where somebody says that they've seen their dead father visiting them and telling them some sort of secret message. And then that person got the message rolling over in bed and telling their partner, oh, I just saw my dad at the foot of my bed telling me this. And then they find out after the fact that their father has actually died within that same time period. And if you can get the verification, that cross-verification from the spouse that they told that in fact that was a true recollection, then that that does raise some interesting (laughs) questions I guess, from a parapsychological investigative angle. If it's just the one person sort of telling you what they experienced, I don't put a lot of stock into that just because the brain is an incredibly powerful generator of illusions. And it doesn't matter how convinced we are ourselves of our own personal private experiences. We know for a fact that we are oftentimes horrifically wrong with our interpretation of what happened
1: let me pick up on the point you were making before which i think is about the relationship between the brain and consciousness and here's perhaps a tough question and it sort of starts moving us towards some of the more left field research that i've come across with traditional research i think says that our self comes from organized brain activity so i think not totally clear how brain cells produce thoughts or consciousness. But can you explain where does the mind or consciousness come from? How do you explain that?
0: No, I can't explain that. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not a philosopher of mind. I've read as much of the literature as anybody else in the kind of the sciences in terms of the hard problem of consciousness and how this physical organ gives rise to Phenomenological or subjective, airy thoughts, and the problem sort of inherent with understanding that, and why we basically need that sort of self reflective awareness of our own consciousness from an adaptive perspective, because other species presumably don't have that sort of meta consciousness that we do. However, that is still a far cry from assuming that you don't need the brain at all to have consciousness. And I, I think that people oftentimes lose that in the translation of the hard problem of consciousness, that they, they assume that because because they assume there's some connection between the hard problem and the existence of consciousness after death. And even David Chalmers, who's the most prominent philosopher associated with the hard problem, he coined the term the hard problem, doesn't believe that there's any sort of obvious connection between that and the assumption that the mind survives death. He still thinks that you need a brain basically to be conscious. How it works at the level of a living organism is a different question than not needing it at all.
1: I mean, there are areas of research which would counter a lot of the more conventional wisdom, I guess, which you have put forward. I suspect most scientists would fob off, but it starts to say that the brain acts like an intermediary layer, that our minds, our our psyche, our consciousness may not be produced by the brain. So it's sort of the idea that our consciousness is still this sort of undiscovered
0: entity. This transmission device or this transducer of consciousness, that the brain is basically this sort of intermediary that gives rise to subjective experience. But Yeah. I mean, I don't know what to make of that because there's not a lot of meat to it once you try to disentangle it. And the interesting thing to me is that so many of these conversations have been in the space of physicists, you know, non-psychologists, basically, that are interpreting mental phenomena from some sort of mystical sort of quantum physical angle without really doing service to the cognitive science underlying the reasons for our reasoning this way.
1: I mean, it's, it's funny. I mean, I I reflect on the, particularly the last 18, months of the pandemic, which has thrown us all into this world of uncertainty. And although that slightly disconnects from the afterlife, one can see how the narrative genre, if you like, of the afterlife is, of course, particularly maybe now a really appealing thought because, you know, beyond scientific research, there's so much popular belief, which I mean, goes all the way back to the Book of Revelation, to medieval visionaries and to today's thriving narrative and to countless books published on the subject. I read this curious story, which I don't know whether you've come across, of a Duke University neurosurgeon called Ibn Alexander. Let me lay it out. Harvard. Uh, maybe, was it Harvard? I, th- okay, I thought he was it. Either way. <laughs> okay. But he wrote what became a best-selling book called Proof of Heaven in which he claims to have traveled to heaven and he wrote in an article or an interview in Newsweek magazine nearly 10 years ago that and his experience convinced him, you know, that his consciousness exists somehow sort of separate from or outside of the mind and can travel to other dimensions on its own. I'm just going to quote what he said. He wrote this world of consciousness beyond on the body is the true new frontier, not just of science, but of humankind itself. And it's my profound hope that what happened to me will bring the world one step closer to accepting it. Now, does that have any meaning or is that utter BS?
0: Well, I believe he also said that he flew on the back of a giant butterfly with a beautiful woman with long blonde hair and blue eyes. Yeah. What is interesting to me is, first of all, nobody likes the killjoy. Nobody likes the argument that there is no afterlife and that it's all a kind of right. It's not a very uplifting, life-affirming message to take this sort of existential perspective on our mortality. So what you've probably noticed is that there's this, this trend where what's especially effective in this genre, this line of argumentation, is when you find people with with high status that are authorities, especially in a materialist sort of discipline, that say that they have com- been completely transformed by some anomalous experience, like some sort of afterlife encounter. So I used to be a skeptic until this happened, and this completely opened my eyes. It's, it's basically like this sort of narrative for the hero's journey. Like, I was so close-minded, I had this cloister view of human existence, and then I was taken out of my comfort zone as this sort of character on this journey, and I saw this entirely new world. and It was transformative to me. And I came back a totally different person, an enlightened person, a more informed person, a better person. And now I'm here to give you this message and communicate this with you. That's what works in terms of the formulaic approach to these best selling accounts of life after death. And to rebel against that, I think is is at your peril, because the going in the opposite direction is not something that's going to sell a lot of books. So I guess I would just be wary of that under Underlying formula for new age philosophy and these sort of near-death experience bestseller type book accounts because it's incredibly predictable. And it's very Judeo-Christian, sort of in its orientation.
1: Explain what you mean by that?
0: Well, that there's a moralistic element to it, that the revelation is basically coming back to Earth, sharing with people what we should be doing in terms of our purpose in this life. And I find that problematic from a cognitive science perspective because I've also done a lot of research looking at how people think about purpose and teleological function and the illusion that we have that we are here for reason at all. And once you really sort of grind down into the psychological elements of meaning and belief and God and all that stuff, it can be explained in much more mechanistic, parsimonious terms than resorting to some vague lofty, pseudo-religious type of framework.
1: Let me then just ask one final question on this subject before we move on. Through writing the book, to what extent have your thoughts and conclusions changed on the subject, if at all?
0: Well, I'm still writing it, and I guess I would say that I am open minded and I am trying to take as neutral and as objective a stance to particular cases of paranormal phenomena, anomalous experiences as I possibly can, and really sort of mount the best defense of, that I can based on the evidence, but also interrogate them with my own and others' research findings in the cognitive science of religion and thinking about the afterlife and so on. So, but to be honest, I think that there are particular discrete case studies that are not always so easy to discount. And hardcore skeptics, even hearing me say that, will be upset because they think that I'm indulging somehow these impossible types of phenomena. But like I said, I think that you know if you really disentangle at a sort of forensic level, all the intricacies of individual cases, there are a couple that are not too easy to explain
1: that is the end of part one with jesse and i hope you can come back next week that's a temporal shift you can 100 percent rely on when we'll be diving into a range of other taboos such as suicide sexuality and fetishes you don't want to miss the story of the climophiliacs who get aroused from tumbling down staircases before i close can i ask you a small favor go to apple spotify or wherever you listen to your podcasts subscribe and Follow me and leave a 5-star review. It does me the world of good in this cold winter weather. And if you haven't signed up yet for all my writings on Monday BS and the Pod Archives, now's the time to do that at a load of Be well and see you next time.